Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 25 through 32 this morning as we talk about New Year, New You, part 2. New Year, New You, part 2. I, I want to begin with a question. If, if you're a, an a art person, if you a craft, and, and really it can be outside that realm, it may be in any process, is there a part of that process where you always dread reaching? For me, I'm a wannabe woodworker, okay? I, I enjoy working with wood. I enjoy building things with my hand. But there's just one part of the process that I loathe. And when I start getting close to it, I start dragging my feet because I don't want to get there. And when I get there, I kind of sit down and throw my hands up because I don't want to be there, you know? It's this, when I build something, I hate to paint it. I just cannot stand painting when we first moved here 24 years ago, my wife said, we need to paint the house. I never got more work done that week. Worked late, got up early. Why? I run from painting like the plague. I just, and I'm not good at it. My strategy for painting, open the can and throw it. And what lands and sticks, that's the expression we'll accept. You know how bad that is. Do you have a point in the process that's like that for you? Well, there seems to be a point in every process that demands the sharpest focus, that, that requires the greatest energy and all, often requires even more repetition to kind of fight through that, to improve, to perfect and that kind of say. And the good news that I have for you today is this message for most people is gonna be that point in the process. <laughs> now you're really excited, aren't you? Oh, I can't wait to hear this, right? I'm hoping not just to set you up for it, but to say, let's walk through this and see if God doesn't have a glorious other side for us in it. Let's go to Ephesians chapter four. We're gonna read the text and then we'll come back to the message for today. Ephesians four, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. 
Last week, I preached the first half of this series, New Year, New You, and we talked about how in Ephesians 4, Paul establishes that Jesus is Lord over everything, and he builds on this theological and foundation that he established in the first part of the book, and, and now he's talking very practically about how it is that we live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ in this world. The whole Christian life is built on this single confession, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And last week, we looked at three foundational convictions for following Jesus. I want to review those really quickly with you. First of all, Christ followers no longer live according to worldly thinking. The Bible tells us that we are being renewed in the knowledge after the image of our creator. We, we don't think the, world, the way the world thinks because of who has changed our life and is changing us. The second foundational conviction was that the life of following Christ must be learned. We talked about how following Jesus was a process that we must learn in our life. And then thirdly, Christ followers live out our confession by a practical rhythm of repentance. That we, we learn this process by living out our confession, Jesus is Lord, through a very practical rhythm of repentance. We, we live in this world in the midst of a war of natures, the old and the new warring with each other. But because of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the, 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 the tomb and seated at the right hand of the Father, we know we will overcome because he has overcome. But yet we have a war for now. And the process of repentance by faith confronts the lies and the darkness of sin with the light of God's truth to bring righteousness to bear upon our life as we live out for godliness in us. Now, let me offer one word of warning as we move into a very practical message today. And here's the word of warning I want to offer you. When we speak of the process of learning, we must understand that this is never an excuse for us for sin. Romans 1.20 makes very clear that before God, we are without excuse in our sin. So there is no excuse but in our mind that is being renewed by the truth of God's word, this process of learning becomes an explanation that fuels the exercise of God's grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ to apply his forgiveness and cleansing for more growth into his image. As you may have read on the wall above the doors when you came in today, we are aiming at more Jesus in our life. We're aiming for more Jesus in your life. We are aiming for more Jesus in the whole world. And so what I wanna to say to you today as we talk about repentance is that we are stirring the grace of God up which has come to us to forgive us and cleanse us of our sin but is also given to us, the scripture teaches, to empower us to walk in righteousness. This is what Jesus brings to us. And so today we move to the kind of life that those three convictions motivate us to live. And what I want you to walk away with today is this, that Jesus makes you new to produce a new kind of living that forms more of him in you. Jesus makes you new to form a new kind of living that forms more of him in you. John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. That's exactly what we're talking about today. Last week, I made the statement that the way you think determines the way you live. 
The way you think determines the way you live. You will not escape this reality because you cannot escape this reality. Learning to think distinctively according to God's word determines your living and whether or not it will be empowered by this process of repentance. And so I want us to look at five practices of repentance from Paul's words here that form the new you in Jesus. How is it that we engage the battles of the new man with the old to bring about the victory that Christ has died to give us eternally and ultimately? Practice number one, verse 25, is simply this. Commit to speak the truth. Commit to speak the truth. This is a foundational practice for everything else that we will speak of here. Verse 25 says, therefore, having put away falsehoods, when were they put away? In the forgiveness and the cleansing that comes through God's grace in Jesus Christ. He says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. This is actually the second time in this chapter that Paul instructs us in the importance of speaking the truth. The second time in one chapter, verse 15, he tells us speaking the truth in love, talking about with one another in community as the central conversation of the church. This is the way that we grow up into Jesus Christ. This is the way we mature as Christians. We speak the truth to one another in love. But here in verse 25, he repeats it again. He says, speak the truth with your neighbor. He's not just repeating it to say, have more ministry among among you, but rather he's expanding where truth must be spoken that will define our Christian witness at all times. We are implored to speak the truth at all times. You see, friends, you can't accommodate the world's narrative and bear a faithful witness for Jesus Christ. The two do not coexist. And if you want to be changed by truth, you must put away all falsehood everywhere you find it so that you can walk in the light of God's truth. Now let's think about this for a moment because so often we make decisions out of pragmatism for our life. Most people tolerate lies because they don't like conflict, right? If I ignore it, it'll go away or at least go away from me. The fact of the matter is when you ignore or tolerate lies, you're denying the central fact of what's going on. It is the falsehood that's creating the conflict. And until you address it with truth, the conflict cannot go away. Now many, many also think that lies and deceit will help shorten the path from where they are to where they wanna be. And so if we take a shortcut, if we believe a lie, if we tell a lie, if, if we do this one little thing that gets us there a little quicker, then it'll provide something that I'm needing and that will be good. Therefore, the end justifies the what? The means. But that's the essence of a lie, friends, making you think that it will actually produce what it can never provide. It's the very essence of a lie. You see, speak the truth means two things for us. It means, first of all, what you speak must be the truth. Most of us get, I don't lie. Many of us, I'll be a little kinder to us in this one, tolerate half-truths. Not just in other people, in us. But a half-truth 
makes a whole what? Lie. Every lie has a percentage of truth to make it sticky. And the rest of it is what we put up with. So speaking the truth means that we must, what we speak must be the truth. But the second part of this is true as well. We must speak. We must speak. You see, you don't have to correct every wrong around you. This is what social media has made us think. That if something crosses my feed, regardless of whether it comes from somebody on the other side of the world or somebody next door, well, I've, I've got to correct that. No, I'm not talking about that. You can't be the corrector of all things or you'll end up with social media depression fueled by anxiety, which is one of the number one mental health issues that we're struggling with in the world today. And why is that? Because y'all didn't read my tweet that solved everything you're wrestling with, right? If you just read the one tweet, you'd all be fine. This will all be taken care of. I don't know how many conversations I've had with other men sitting around at gatherings where we've solved all the world's problems. But nobody's just taking our advice yet. I hope you understand that's some sarcasm dripping from what I'm saying in this moment. No, friends, but listen, you must speak where you are involved, where you are involved. That's why he says, speak the truth with our neighbor. We are members of one another where we've got flesh in the game, where we've got ownership or responsibility or even connectedness. We've got to speak. And what we speak must be the truth. We can neither, neither accept nor accommodate anything that counters truth without addressing it with light. Doesn't mean we have to correct everybody in the moment and argue belligerently until they get it. But maybe it's a, maybe it's a passing word later. Sometimes an apology for not speaking up earlier. Sometimes for softly and tenderly saying, you know, I, I believe what God's word instructs for us is and redirecting. Falsehood always settles where truth remains absent. Falsehood always settles where truth remains absent. Christ followers speak the truth to fill the world with the glory of God's wisdom. Fill the whole world with the glory of God's wisdom. You see, in this nature, repentance is becoming proactive. It's not just what we do after sin, but repentance is the very process in which we live in our transformation into Christ's likeness, where we are taking the eternal truth of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been placed upon us before God, and the way we're living that out before other people is a process of repentance. So we're not only repenting of sin we've committed, we are repenting of sin that is tempting us as well. We identify sin and we say by confession, which literally means to agree, Lord, I know this is not in alignment with your word. This is not in accordance with your will. This is sin because of what it is and what your word says. Or this is sin because of what it is inviting, tempting, or wanting me to do or to produce in me, which is counter to your word. We confess it is sin in agreement and alignment with what the revelation of God's word teaches us. And we turn away from that. That's 50% of repentance. 
The other part is we engage God's word that addresses the issue, the situation, the circumstance, or the relationship where sin was tempting and threatening us, and we identify the truth of God's righteousness, and we embrace it. We confess, agree with God about what his word says, and sometimes we even find ourselves saying, Lord, I know your word says this. I'm not sure I understand it, not sure I believe it, not sure I agree with it, and sometimes I don't even like it. But your word said it, and that's what I need to live. And so repentance is turning from and turning to and anchoring our faith in the righteousness of God to be applied in the reality of my life. Repentance is the practice that forms the process for you to do that. And so these next four practices are not just what we turn away from because we've committed a sin, but identifying sin even at its temptational, catalytic moment where it's conceived and an inception, we identify it so we can flee from it before we ever commit it. What does he say? Look at verse 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Here's the second practice. Redeem your anger to grow godliness. Redeem your anger to grow godliness. Friends, hear me. Anger is not sin. Anger is not sin. It is always, though, an indicator and an invitation and how you respond to it will determine whether it is righteous or unrighteous and what it produces in you. A number of years ago, I attended a seminar on emotional health, on emotional health. And the psychologist who was leading the seminar said, anger is a secondary emotion. <laughs> I was so disappointed in that moment. It's like, what do you mean it's a secondary emotion? That makes me angry. And he said, why does that make you angry? I don't care why it makes me angry. I just want to sit in the fact that I'm angry, right? I thought I'd mastered my emotions because when I get angry, I know it and I'm owning it, right? He was like, no, no, no. There's something that's driving that. It's confronting, it's threatening you. It's countering something you already believe. And that really got me to thinking. Biblically, that is so helpful because anger signifies or tells us that something is not right. You see, it's never been a question for me to wonder why I got angry. God, God gets angry. Anger is an emotion that God gave to you to fulfill his righteousness in you. Now let this set with you for a moment. It's making some of you angry, I can tell. Come on, that was funnier than you acknowledged. Anger is our response to anything that counters, that confronts, or threatens us. If you claim to never get angry, let me, just, let me just be really blunt with you. You are a liar and you are deceived. How do you feel about what I just said? That was the illustration. Every person in the room has an anger issue. Some let it become a problem. See, some are more obvious than others. God bless some of us with the capacity to be more vocal. But just because anger is not outward and manifested outwardly 
doesn't mean it's not present. Just because you don't think it's present doesn't mean you're handling it well. You see, anger is not your problem, friends. But unaddressed anger is what's producing sin in you. Why? Because where you don't apply the righteousness and the light of God's truth, Satan is inhabiting it with his lies to deceive you and manifesting unrighteousness in you and through you. You see, just because people in your, wife, uh, in your life walk on eggshells around you and tolerate your manifestations of unrighteous anger doesn't mean you don't have a problem. It means everybody's accommodating and enabling your problem. We understand this in other areas of life and addictions. We just kind of bypass it sometimes with anger. Unaddressed anger, Paul is teaching us, becomes Satan's invitation And unrighteous manifestations create all your problems with anger. Friends, anger does not mean that you are not righteous. There is a righteous anger. But anger that is not aligned with God's word is always self-righteousness. That is your problem. With anger. God filled our anger thermometer with the mercury of his righteousness. Are you tracking with me on this imagery here? I'm hoping it'll help. He filled our anger thermometer with the mercury of his righteousness. You know what mercury does, it's the little red line that rises and measures the temperature, right? He did that to warn our conscience when his holy law that was written on our hearts, Romans chapter one, in creation, when it gets threatened, confronted, or violated. Okay? The mercury originally put within us was the righteousness of God and our anger is aroused when that which threatens, confronts, or counters righteousness comes against us. Sin's depravity tainted the mercury in our anger thermometer so that what causes it to rise in its heatedness now is not threats, confrontations, or countering of righteousness, but that which confronts us. Our anger is aroused by the threat or the violation of self-protection, self-offense, self-righteousness. And when your anger rises, you must choose how you will address it because anger left unaddressed never dissipates. It never dissipates, friends. Like glue left in a cold room, unaddressed anger will always harden the heart first and foremost towards the object that arose it or the object of threat, but all anger will ultimately point itself towards God. Why? Because this, the way that God created us was to respond to him. And when our anger is aroused out of self-righteousness that is counter to God, it will always point back to God to blame, to accuse. What you do with and what you do out of your anger determines whether or not you commit a sin. What you do with it, what you do out of it is what will determine whether or not it becomes sin. And Paul grants us two exhortations to guide us in dealing with our anger. First of all, 
guard yourself so that your anger does not produce sin in you. You've got to recognize that anger is something that has to be addressed every time. And the more you learn to address it earlier, not only the easier and the more faithful it is to steer it towards righteousness through the practice of repentance. Lord, this is sin. I'm feeling it. But I want to walk in the light of righteousness. And so learn to recognize when your anger rises, even at its inception, so you can address it there. And secondly, he says, look for the reason that your anger is rising and deal with it so that Satan cannot have his way in you. You see, unaddressed anger is the evil one's invitation to own you. When you let it go and dismiss it, neglect it like it's not there, you're practically saying, Satan, have your way in me. Do whatever you want. Because when we give ourselves over to our anger, we don't control ourselves very well. And we're the last ones to know it. That's what Paul is teaching us here, that our anger is defined by and given in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so Christ followers recognize Anger as a healthy emotion, but listen to me, a dangerous bed partner. That's why he says, don't let the sun go down on it. Don't go to bed angry. Have you heard that counsel? Yeah, why? Because anger makes a hard, a horrible bed partner. Therefore, we apply the gospel to discern God's truth and to respond in righteousness to be produced both in us and through us. And in that way, Anger becomes actually a critical part of your righteousness and of your growth in Christ-likeness. Number three, number three, verse 28. We labor to build a life of generosity. Labor to build a life of generosity. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, now, friends, when we think about this, most of us will say, well, I'm not a thief. I haven't stolen anything. But listen, stealing is, is, is sin, not only because of what we take that is not ours, that is another's, but most importantly, stealing inceptually is a sin because it denies God's provision and it grows greed within us. It's looking to something other than God to satisfy us. You see, God designed people to labor and to earn in this world so we could both provide for our needs, but also we could be generous in times of need to help others. And honesty and integrity in labor and relationship are righteous values that confront stealing, which shortcuts the path to gain. That's all stealing is trying to do is get from here to there more quickly than the labor may demand. And notice this, this is so interesting about all of this, but specifically Paul points it out here. Notice how the sinful action produces the sin-stained identity. Look what he says, let the thief no longer steal. When did the thief become a thief? When he stole. The practices of his life are coming to determine the identity of who he is. That's what sin does to you. Sin makes you think that you're nothing more than the accumulation of your activity. But God says, I set my righteousness upon you and out of the fullness of me in you, you are to go and to do and to bear good deeds 
for my name's sake. You see, sin reverses the curse in every way. And that's what Paul is trying to teach us here. Stealing may get you something, but in the process, it condemns and destroys the very soul of who you are. That's what all sin does to us. But honesty and integrity manifest the rightness and the justice of God, not only from within us, but into the whole world. And when we practice honesty and integrity, they begin to forge and shape the very character of our individual and produce from us other goodness that comes out in generosity. We become more like God. Why? Because of the practice of honesty and integrity. You see, a strong work ethic, friends, honors God. And that is the way of the Christian, to acknowledge God as the source of our life by a strong, solid work ethic. And so Christians labor to demonstrate God's goodness in life and the provisions he gives to us, but also outwardly by being generous to other people. That is compounding and building further honesty and integrity and righteousness within us because of what it affords us. Parents, I want to say a word of counsel for you here. I don't want to be careful because there's a line here. I'm not speaking to every situation, but I am speaking in general about this. You, if you want your children to live in honesty and integrity, if you don't, we need to talk about something else. Immediately after the service, I'll be here at the front. Please come. You want this for your children. Honesty and integrity, okay? You must train them in a high work ethic as they grow up. Train them in the value of labor and striving to earn. These are biblical values for our creational life in this world as opposed to only giving or receiving for nothing. I'm not saying never give them gifts. No, God is the father and he gives good gifts to his children. And when we give good gifts to our children, it represents the righteousness of God too and his loving kindness towards us. But in building honesty and integrity in our children, teach them to labor and strive to earn. You see, the difference is on one end, you foster entitlement by coddling laziness. And laziness and slothfulness is always unrighteous. I'm not saying rest. It's not the same as slothfulness and laziness. But when you train them to labor and strive to earn, you're building honesty and integrity through a high work ethic. You are sharpening their character into the likeness of God and his truth. Learning this lesson as an adult is painful, and it is seldom without lasting consequences. But I want to make one caveat here, because the things that we engage our children in are important. I want to talk about the recreational activities of our children, whether it's in sports or whether it's in the arts or some other form, everything that we engage their life in. These are super great to teach the value of discipline in our labor, teaching them the value of discipline to work hard, and also teaching them to strive towards goals. Competition is good. It sharpens us. It, it, there's a process in that that is good. But there are two aspects of that recreation, whether it's in sports or arts or otherwise, that are incapable of teaching a high work ethic. Number one, the economics of labor and striving. Sports cannot teach that. Arts, dance, band, music, whatever it may be. You say, but people make their living by that. That's right. 
That's because they've added something to it, to the discipline of striving toward a goal. It cannot teach the economics of labor and striving. Even, even if your child goes into professional sports, professional music, whatever the case is, it will not be the economics of that that teaches them a high work ethic. But secondly, the other thing is that it cannot teach them the value of labor simply for the good of it. It produces so much good for them, but, but, but it can't teach the value of the labor of it simply for the good of it. And what do I mean by that? Well, working with our hands, with our minds, with our lives, with the physical bodies, whatever manifestation it may be. God created us to do that. And we ought to teach our children that that is a good practice to do, just to do and experience the goodness of God in the physical creational form. That's good. Sometimes they need to be bored so they can go figure out what they're going to do. And in the figuring out of it, begin to learn how much enjoyment how much goodness there is just to be with God, just to express this physical life he's given us. So use sports, arts, recreation, all of those things to teach, but never use it purely as a substitute for building a high work ethic. All right, number four, verses 29 and 30. Speak words to build up. Speak words to build up. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Listen to me, friends. Corrupt speech provides the greatest evidence of, uh, and depth of depravity and perversion in society today. It, it's, the, it's the fever of our culture. The way we talk, what we say, and how we talk is the fever of our culture that, real, that, that says to us, we, we've got a serious, serious problem, friends. I offer this one illustration. You're hard-pressed to find a movie today whose script didn't start with the F word and just add a few other words around it to try and create a, a, a manuscript or a, a transcript for the movie. And, and I'm not just talking about, you know, Hallmark that only has one script with different backgrounds. That used to be funnier. It's gotten sad now. They just keep doing it. You're like, don't they know? Every movie within minutes immediately becomes a tirade of perversion with the tongue. I'm like, we, we, we are killing ourselves we are, we are squashing out creativity, intellect. We, we're killing it. Listen, I'm no prosperity gospel preacher to tell you that you create your own reality with your speech. But the Bible does teach this clearly. That your language and your speech and what you use both represent and strengthen the reality of what's in your heart. Like every other addiction, the lesser swear words build a roadbed to all corrupt speech, to all corrupt speech. And corrupt talk really has three main expressions. What, what Paul is telling us not to practice here is this. First of all, cursing, using curse words, it holds a double destruction effect. It makes you sound dumb and it makes you dumb. Now I was taught this like in fourth or fifth grade because I needed to be taught this. But, but, 
when I use the word dumb here, I'm not using it in a derogatory manner. I'm using it in its literal meaning without knowledge, without intellect. It strips, steals intellect from you when you reduce your language to curse words. The more you curse, the dumber you sound and the dumber you become because it reduces your vocabulary and the need for the building of your vocabulary to a few meaningless words. That's all it does. That's all it does. And it's not about what it produces outwardly only, which you are cursing other people when you use the words, whether it's directed at them or not. But most importantly, it's perverting inwardly. It's perverting inwardly. The second form of corrupt talk is coarse speech. Coarse speech is where we use legitimate words in illegitimate ways in order to propagate perversion and unrighteousness. And I'll say this, the, the unrighteousness that is most dominating the culture typically provides the primary object of words used. For instance, words associated with sex today that get used so freely. You, you listen, I listen to a lot of comedians because public speaking, there's just things I can learn from them and, and I like to laugh and those kinds of things. So many of them, when their comedy is small and they're really not that funny, they always resort to cursing and to coarse talk. Why? Because it gets a cheap laugh every time. Doesn't make them funny. Just gets them a cheap laugh and salves some kind of lesser identity that they're trying to overcompensate for. Illegitimate references are most prolific. In other words, words associated with sex. One I've already mentioned that takes the highest and the holiest act of the physical world that connects body and soul together. Illegitimate references are most prolific because they simultaneously are universal in communication to all humanity. And they both pervert the action and condemn the identity all in one fell swoop. All of that takes place in one word. That's how damnable it really is upon us. Not only our mind and our heart, but our soul. Number three, criticism is the third form of corrupt talk. And criticism is just negative speech of something or someone with the intent of tearing down and destroying. But look what it does. Again, the practice defining the identity. Criticism's destruction is this. The more you practice it, the more it inhabits you. And the more you practice it and the more it inhabits you, the more you personify a spirit of criticism. Recently, I have a friend who in the last number of years has gone through some really hard things. And the greatest burden of my heart for them is this. It would seem that criticism is inhabiting their life. Everything they talk about, every way in which they talk about it, they don't curse, they don't use coarse talk or anything like this. But man, there's just a criticism that's filling them that is so evident to everyone except for them. A spirit of criticism inhabits you. The more you speak critically, the more you think critically, and I don't mean in the good way, and the more you're inhabited by it. But the greatest problem of corrupt talk comes with verse 30. Look at verse 30. And, and he says, you know what that word does? 
It connects what was just said with what's about to be said. And these come together. He says this, do not grieve the spirit of God. Here's what corrupt speech does for you, friends. It is always a strategy to neglect and avoid God altogether. That's what corrupt speech is. It gives you a shortcut to get away from God because once you exercise corrupt speech in any of its forms, you shut the Holy Spirit up within you and you begin to produce ungodliness in yourself because you cannot produce godliness absent of the Holy Spirit. So every time you practice corrupt talk, you block God from the occasion, you block God from the situation, you block God from the relationship. And the more you allow, entertain, and practice corrupt talk, the greater you are affected by it, the greater you are infected with it. And mostly, the more you are severing the Holy Spirit from the situation, both in conversation, but friends, also in relationship and in your own heart. Christ followers do not walk by the light of God's truth without the Holy Spirit. Our very lifeblood, is by the habitation of the Spirit of God that he put within us when he brought us from death to life. We are utterly dependent upon the Spirit of God to shine the light of God's truth into us. And if we grieve the Holy Spirit, it's like having a flashlight with no batteries. You got the bulb, but it's not shining. You got the intellect, you don't have the faith to apply it. Don't be deceived in that. Christ follower, your tongue is both a tool and a weapon to build up and to destroy lies. Every time you use it, be careful to do so in a way that builds and does not destroy. Even when you have to say negative or hard things, which are often important to say. Every time you use your tongue, both in public and in private, you either build or destroy, you either sow or grieve the spirit, you either cultivate godliness or you propagate wickedness in your heart. What is your tongue creating of you? Number five, and I'll close with this and I'll be quick because it's going to offend the most. Verse 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You say, Pastor, how in the world? How could this offend? Buckle your seatbelt. Number five is model in life what God has shown toward you. Model in your life what God has shown towards you, Christ follower. When you fail to put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice, you're just being nice. And nice is a horrible substitute for kindness. Hear me. God never commands you to be nice. Look it up. I did. Because if I'm going to make a statement like that, I better do the work. There are four times it's used in the English language to interpret and translate in the Bible. Jeremiah, Isaiah twice, and Joshua. Two of those times, it's an adjective. Oh, that's a nice stone you have put there on the altar or whatever the case may be. The other two are used in what we would consider, oh, someone acting nice. But in every time, most modern translations have moved away from it and have gone to a truer meaning of the word, which is some form of God's goodness to us. Niceness is a poor, horrible substitute for that. You see, friends, he says, be kind. Kindness is not niceness. 
Kindness is a godly trait that personifies the goodness of God to bless another. Nice is a mask that we put forth to cover and fabricate reality. Kindness serves the one who receives it. Nice focuses on oneself to cover the one who offers it. Kindness considers the other person and acts for their good. Nice is what you do when you need to get on with life and you don't want to be bothered with what you've been confronted by. Kindness considers another and how you can serve to help, encourage, or alleviate some burden. But friends, you can harbor all the bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice you want to and still pull off niceness. But you will never be kind until you put these things away. That makes nice a ticking time bomb. Not only in us, but of us. But it makes kindness It's like that gum they used to chew. In the first or second bite, it just had a burst of refreshment. Kindness is something you encounter you weren't expecting. But man, when you do, it's just like refreshment and blessing that washes over you from another. That's what Paul is saying. Put these things away. They're killing you. And be kind. Be kind. Offer life and refreshment where it is not found Kindness draws from from God's nature towards people in mercy and grace to offer his goodness to them. Nice is a hollow shell that's hiding your reality. Nice is never tenderhearted. Kindness only acts out of a tender heart. Nice is a strategy to evade and escape. Kind is a strategy to enter in and alleviate shame, guilt, and sin's burden from another as much as you can. Why? Because that's what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And you want him to do it for them. Christ followers live to model this kind of life and to share what God has shown to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be kind. Put away niceness. It's a shortcut substitute that is a horrible witness of Christ. But kindness... You bless another while your own heart gets changed. Jesus makes us new to produce a new kind of living that forms more of him in you. I'm gonna ask the worship team to return. And while they do, let me say just a couple of final words. Of greatest interest in this passage is the relationship between our speech and our actions and our heart condition. the the true point of our heart condition. So what we say, what we do, and how it determines what's really going on in us. And listen to me, not only that, but our heart condition to form the very essence of our identity out of which we are living. That's why, friends, when we look at the perverseness of society and all of the temperature measuring signals that it's sending, we're reeling with issues of identity. Because the fever is burning and we're treating it with everything to lower the fever when God brings the solution to the cancerous illness. My question to you today is this, what kind of life are you forming by the words and the actions with which you are living Are you living out of the righteousness that Christ came and died and put on you in Christ? Are you offering the world a cheap substitute that's deceiving further not only them but you too? Christian, if that's you, I'm calling you to repent today. Not once, 
but as a way of living. Turn to the Lord. People are dying moment by moment, desperate to find a faithful witness that will shine the light of hope, of goodness into their life. And if you're not a believer here today, the invitation for you, friends, is to come to the light. Let the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ inhabit the whole being of who you are and change you from within and be told to others because of your life. Let me pray and we'll respond to the Lord.